you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. We've got 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went into the went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. <coughs> and be- <coughs> Sorry. Um, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Habel-Meholah, you shall anoint be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. 
Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again for what I have done to you. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted, to, assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, it's time to have our last look at the chaos and the comfort that is uh, the man Elijah. Uh, we've watched as Elijah has taken on the battle of the gods, as God has declared his dominance over his world through his servant and has done battle with Baal. We've watched the battle of the voices, the battle of the spokesmen, as the messengers of the surrounding nations were silenced by Elijah. And now we come to the final battle, perhaps the hardest battle. It's the battle to be heard, or perhaps the battle to keep on hearing, the battle to keep on trusting, the battle to actually keep serving Yahweh himself. Now, I imagine that's a battle that we all enter into from time to time. We're going to need God's help with this one. Uh, so let's pray, and then let's enjoy this passage from our God. Fantastic Father, again, we thank you for the extraordinary life and person that is the man Elijah. But more than that, we thank you for the way that this book is prophecy. We thank you for the way that it shows us who you are. We thank you for the way that it shows us something of your son, and because of that, we thank you for the way that it shows us how we should live. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, friends, uh, let me tell you just a little bit more about myself. Uh, I do consider myself to be a handyman, uh, one of those guys that's fairly useful around the house. But I'm not one of those pretend handymen. You know the handymen that have actually got training, the cheats? You know the guys that actually they own a whole bunch of tools and so they've got things that they can rely on and they go out and they know what they're doing ahead of time. There's no challenge, there's no mystery, there's no drama. I'm not like that. I'm a genuine handyman. And so uh, last year uh, we were putting in a pool and of course we uh, priced how much it was going to cost to put the fence in and I thought, oh, I'm not paying that. A fence, how hard can it be? And so I did. I put up a number of my own fences, only three of which needed to be redone. And I discovered that there is such a thing as load-bearing paint. If it doesn't look any good, just whack some of that stuff on it. Everything can be fixed. But of course, the inevitable ex question that I find myself posing whenever I pretend to be a handyman, whether it's the fence that I put around the pool or our front gate is, at what point do you start again? Like when you look at what you're doing and you look at what you're trying to achieve and you look at the goal where you want the finished product to be, at what point do you just stop? Go, you know what? We're just going to start again. And like every true handyman, as soon as I'm finished, I know exactly how to begin. I'd love to do it all over again. And sometimes the work-life balance can be a bit like that. The question of when, when do you just stop and when do you start again? So much so, we've got the, you know, the whole New Year's reunion thing you're meant to do at the 1st of January every year and you kind of do and then you forget about it. But every now and again, you really do pose the question, when do I just start again? When do I just need the whole career change? When's it time for just a whole new job? Or when's it time for a, a life change? Maybe I looked in the mirror, didn't like what I see. Maybe the doctor looked at me and didn't like what he saw. Maybe the cholesterol was a little bit of a hint. Whatever it was, when's the time to start again? You can do that kind of with your career. You can do that with your life choices. You've got to do it with parenting. How many times do you just look at the way you're behaving with your kids? You look at the way you speak to them. You look at what you're modelling and you're like, man, this just doesn't need a lick of paint. This just needs a reset. Start again. Happens in churches, doesn't it? Now, churches, if they're doing their job well, are going to need to restart every now and again. And the reason for that is we live in a world that keeps on changing. If we keep doing the exact same thing and the world keeps changing, the message is going to be distorted. When's the time just to start 
again. But the question we're going to ask today, when's it time to start again? When's it time to start again with the world? When does the world get to the point where it's just, it's just time to hit the reset button? This thing has just got so far off track, we're going to have to start again. We live in a post-Christian world. How post does it have to get before the reset button is hit? That's the question that we're going to ask today as we look at this amazing chapter that is 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. So, of course, I hope you do have the ESV Bible open. I hope it's not just there on the shelf, but you better have one of them on the shelf at home because it's going to be checked, apparently. But for now, you better have it open. Let's jump in and have a look because if you can remember where we've been, everything was just so hopeful at the end of chapter 18, wasn't it? You get the king charging off in his vehicle of war and his army tank, his chariot, and he's off to see Jezebel and he's got the uh, prophet of God through the power of God with the word of God on his lips charging off in front of him. The two are heading off to war as it seems. And who could stop the prophet of God and the king of God as they follow God himself? And the two of them are charging off to confront Jezebel. Now is the moment, people. Now is the moment when the influence of Baal will finally be cast out for good. And so we're so expectant as we begin the chapter. Ahaz told Jezebel, just get out. Just go. It's over. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Yeah, not quite. Ahaz told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Notice not God. All that Elijah had done and how he had killed, that's a different word to the one that Elijah used, sacrificed, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Can you see what we find out in verse 1? We actually get the world from Ahaz's perspective, the king of Israel's perspective. And what's his perspective? The good guys lost. The prophets of Baal lost and the destroyer of Israel the prophet of Israel Elijah won Yahweh he is God it seemed was only just a fleeting sentiment of the people of God and so as he runs to his wife to solve the problem it is a little bit reminiscent of Adam and Eve in a way isn't it It's a little bit reminiscent of Adam just kind of following Eve. Now, I get it, Eve, you know, model 2.0, it was an upgrade, sure, worth listening to, but we're sort of given the message here, isn't it? It's no excuse when it comes to failing before God to listen to someone else, even to listen to your wife. And so Ahab, he goes home, he declares to Jezebel, the good guys have lost, and listen to Jezebel's response, verse 2. She sends a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them that you killed by this time tomorrow. And herein lies the plot of every superhero movie you've ever watched by Marvel. They've ripped it straight out of the playbook of the Bible where the supervillain just disposes and just announces the plan to the hero only to give the hero the time to escape. Just send in an assassin. You don't need to tell them, people. Just send it in, end it, the scene would have been over. She announces her plan. You've got 24 hours, set the watch, and then I'm going to do something. And so what does Elijah do? Verse 3, he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba. And that's a distance, Beersheba, from where he is at the moment. That's about 150 k's away. That's here to the Gold Coast. Now, I do a little bit of running. That's a long run, isn't it? That guy's afraid. But it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? This is the guy that just took on 450 prophets of Baal in a cook-off to the death. This is the guy that stood up to the whole nation. This is the guy that told Israel how it was going to be. And now at the promise of violence in 24 hours to come, he runs. What's the story there? He actually let the prophets of Baal go first, gave them the opportunity to win. Not even Moses did that. 
When it came to Moses in the ten plagues, he went first with his little staff trick. You know, let me prove I'm from God. Here's my staff. Bang, it's a snake. They went second and copied, but his snake ate theirs. He still went first. And in fact, even Moses wasn't game enough to speak on his own. Remember how he needed Aaron? Elijah wasn't like that. What's happened to the guy? Unfortunately, look, I'm going to do something you should never do. So look, you know, pause the recording or whatever's going on here. Because what I'm going to do, I'm about to argue against the Bible. So, you know, you shouldn't really do this. Uh, The ESV, great translation. But the ESV has made a choice, and it's a good choice most of the time, that when it comes to translating the Old Testament, it's going to follow what we call the LXX. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, And it does that for really good reasons. That's a really good thing to do. But here... The Greek Old Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament just vary a little bit. And I think the Hebrew makes a little bit more sense. Because when you read verse 3 in the Hebrew rather than the Greek, if that makes no sense, talk to your ministers later, it doesn't start with the word afraid, it starts with the word to see. Elijah saw. So he saw that Jezebel was threatening him and then he arose And again, in Hebrew, the word isn't run. There was a word at the end of chapter 18 when Elijah just managed to outrun a chariot. That's the Hebrew word for run. Here it's a different word. It's actually the word halak, which is the word to move or to walk. What's going on in verse 3? I don't think Elijah's scared. That's not him. But he sees it hasn't worked. And he stands... And he walks a long way, 150 k's, he, he leaves. What's going on? I don't think it's fear. I think he sees the faithlessness of Ahab. And he sees the ongoing control of Jezebel. And he just gets frustrated. He gets demoralised. Like the guy has just brought down a miracle of miracles. The guy just prayed and fire fell from heaven and Ahaz saw that. Now this is a guy that knows God can do whatever he wants to do, but what's the impact of a miracle? Nothing. The king goes to Jezebel. Jezebel's still just as brave. Elijah is, I don't think he's scared, I think he's demoralised. Like honestly, you're trying to convert your neighbours. Your neighbours don't believe in God. So you go out to the backyard, you put the snags on the barbecue, you pray, fire comes down from heaven and they go, so? What's your plan B? (laughs) Elijah sees, he's demoralised, he's frustrated and so he leaves. And who's this remind you of? He goes to a broom tree And he asked the Lord that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Can you hear the frustration? And who's he remind you of? That other great whinging prophet, Jonah. Enough, Lord. Enough. I'm upset enough to die. Why is he upset enough to die? Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. God, we've done this before. You've done the miracle thing before. You did it with Moses. What was the great response of the people of God to Moses? Faithlessness. What's the great response to the miracles in the time of Elijah? Faithlessness. Can you relate? Like, how do you feel when you open up your iPhone and you just flick to the bit where the news is there? And just yesterday, what did I see on the news feed when I looked there again? Again, it's the world having a go at Hillsong and trashing the new guy that's about to come in. And I know Hillsong's stuffed up and they did a bunch of things wrong. But they're a big church. They're going to make mistakes. And you look at your news feed and you just see the world having another go at us and another go at us. And you look at the Royal Commission. You look at the stuff-ups we've made there. You look at the state of the churches and you just see people struggling to forgive one another. Have you ever got to that point? Enough. It's, it's depressing. We live in that world where Christianity is on the decline. When you look at our leaders, you realise they're no better than us and you just want to sit down under, under your tree and you go, when, Lord? When's it going to end? And that's the introduction to our chapter. The prophets had enough. 
What's the story, God? And then we get it. What's the word we're on the listen out for there in 5B? I could hear a couple of you go, when it was read out. Verse 5B, behold. That's the clue from the author. It's time to listen up. Something's about to happen. This one's a little bit trickier though. Verse 5B, and behold, and I'm going to translate the word for us here, and behold, a messenger touched him. Now, why does the author want you to pay attention to that? Well, this is actually the second time we've had a messenger come to Elijah. The first time a messenger came to Elijah is when Jezebel sent one and said, this time tomorrow you're dead. What happens in 5b? A messenger translated angel there, but angel is just how the word sounds in Greek. So Bible translators, lovely people, every now and again they get lazy. When they don't know what to do, they don't translate and they just give you how the word sounds. So just remember, the word angel is the word messenger. In verse 2, a messenger came to Elijah. What you're meant to read here, Elijah's just prayed, Lord, take me home. I've had enough. A messenger's on the lookout for him. And behold, a messenger wakes him from his sleep. You're meant to think, oh, wow, is this the moment? Is it all about to end? Is God going to get you one enough? I'm going to give you enough. It's over. But no, this messenger, this angel is from God. And he says to him, arise and eat. The first messenger had a message of death. The second message, uh, messenger is bringing a message of sustenance, of life. God actually still has something left for Elijah to do. The game's not over. There's more to the plan. Arise and eat. What's going on? Well, the question of our chapter is how is Yahweh going to respond to Elijah's question enough? That there's more to come, but what is the more? What's Yahweh going to do? What's next? How is he going to cope with his people? Arise and eat for the journey. Oh, we're going somewhere now. God has a plan for the journey is too great for you. And there's a, a clever little play on words that's going here. Elijah's complaint is enough, Lord, enough. God's response, eat, for you do not have enough in Hebrew for the journey. You're not doing enough, God. So God comes, well, you, you don't have enough in your belly, so you better eat enough. And almost God is sustaining. He's giving Elijah enough so that Elijah can keep complaining, you're not doing enough. Beautiful little play on words with the way that God just keeps allowing us to keep complaining. Isn't he gracious? <laughs> now, verse 8 and 9, we get to now see from Elijah's perspective what he thinks God should do. Enough, Lord. No, there's still more to do, but what? Well, I reckon Elijah's got an idea. Verse 8, he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to where? To Mount Sinai, to Horeb, same place. Now, what do you do if you combine the number 40 with a miracle worker of God who was arriving at Mount Sinai? What's Elijah's plan? Well, it gets even better. There he came to a cave. Actually, it's the cave, and he lodged in it. What did Moses do on the mountain of God when he came to hear God speak to the people of God? He hid in a rock cleft. He was hidden because you can't see the face of God and live. And what's Elijah doing under the power of God? He's retracing the steps of a Moses. He's going to Mount Sinai. He's going to Horeb. He's hiding in the cave. Is it? Is it the cleft? Is it the cave? What's he waiting for? Well, he wants God to speak, but he wants God to say what? What is it that he's hoping for? Verse 9b, and behold, all right, you better listen up, the word of the Lord came to him and it said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that question, what are you doing here, it's actually phrased in a really similar way to the widow when she spoke to Elijah, when she said to him, now what have you got against me? In Hebrew, it's almost about the same. It's sort of combining what have you got against me and why are you at this location? So, in Aussie speech, what's your beef, mate? And what are you doing at my house? What have you got against me? And why have you come here? Why did it take you 40 days? Why are you at the mountain of God? Why are you hiding in the cave? What is it that you want me to say, says God? Verse 10, Elijah says, 
I've been very jealous for the Lord. Now pause, for just for, expect for, pretend for a moment you haven't read what's on the screen. What should come next? I've been very jealous for the Lord. How has he described the Lord in the previous couple of chapters? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of my people, the God of promises, the God who remembers, the God who forgives. Not now. I've been very jealous for who? The Lord, the God of hosts, literally the God of minions, the, Lord, the God of hordes, the God of armies, the God of the sword, the God who gets stuff done, the God who says, enough. I'm very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, the one you made right here, God. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. In fact, everything that Elijah said that Ahaz done, he's now saying the people of God has done. And I, only I am left, Lord. You've got one faithful person. It's me. I'm right here. What do you reckon Elijah wants God to do? It's time to start again. It's time to cut your losses. It's time for a new plan, a new word. What did Moses say after he met with God on the mountain? In Exodus 32, 32, when God spoke to Moses, gave him those beautiful 10 words, gave him the promises, revealed his name, what did Moses do? He went down the mountain and what did he see the people of Israel doing? Spiritual adultery. What did God say to Moses? enough let's start again just you and me let's start again what did Moses say to God now if you would only forgive their sin but if not please erase me from the book that you have written what's Elijah want Moses, uh, God to do I reckon he's trying to fix Moses mistake you saw what happened when you forgave the people like Moses asked you to, Lord. It went nowhere. Enough. Let's start again. Let's reset. We live in a post-Yahweh world, a post-Christian world. How long are you going to let this go, God? Enough. Well, it happens. God relents in the sense that I think he's willing to relive the past. I think he's willing to go back. And you get that there in verse 11. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Like it's going to happen. We're actually about to get a theophany. We're about to get an appearance of Yahweh himself. God is going to present himself and we're going to see it all happen again. And of course, what we get is the ferociousness of the Lord as he passes by. Verse 11, and behold... The Lord himself passed by the mountain and again, and it started with the wind. The word is that ru'ah word. It's the wind of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God, the power of God. Now, what does the wind of God do? Well, it can create, it can start again. But here, notice the way it destroys. And what does it destroy? It smashes rock and cliff. Now, I have seen wind. I've seen it destroy tent and tree and feeble houses. Have you ever seen a wind that smashes rock and cliff? That must be something, isn't it? That is a wind. There is the power of God destroying things. And of course, after the winds, there's the earthquake. It's as if the whole world is just reverberating to the footsteps of God himself as he trudges by the mountain. The mountain is shaking. The world is seen is chaotic. It's almost as if it's coming to an end. And that's just the prelude, though, to the fire. And what does fire do? It destroys. It consumes. It purifies. It burns. Is this the moment where it all starts again? And it's so reminiscent of Moses, isn't it? In Moses 19.18, we read, uh, sorry, in Exodus 19.18, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. God has done this before. He's come back again. Now is the moment we're waiting for God to speak, to hit the reset button for the God of armies to act. Verse 12. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Do you see that coming? 
a low whisper. That inner voice where God speaks to his servant. That inner calm where God reassures. That new word from God that gives him confidence to keep going. Actually, that's not it at all. How cool would it be if it was? That at those moments where you're unsure about the plan of God, where you need something from him, and when you stand on the mountain and you say to God, God, I need to know what the game plan is. Let's start again. And what you get is that comforting inner voice where God just whispers your name and you just feel that close connection to him and you feel affirmed and restored. That is just not what happened. Now, I know the word whisper makes it sound like there's a voice, but it's actually just the Hebrew noun for sound. There was a low sound, actually, technically, there was a thin sound, a small sound, and the word that's used here for sound is used elsewhere to describe what you hear after you hear something loud. Psalm 107, verse 29, it uses the same word, the same kind of phrasing, And it says, God made the storm be silent and the waves to be still, to be a low whisper, to be nothing. What is it that Elijah heard when he wanted the new plan, the new word? He heard the absence of noise, ferocious wind, ferocious earthquake, the fire, then nothing No new word, no new plan. Now you can see how clearly disappointed Elijah is because he runs out and he's waiting for the whole new world. He he goes out in front of God, comes out of the cave, and did you notice the way he wraps the mantle around his head? Like, what's he doing? It's not a blindfold game. I think, again, he's still waiting. He's still thinking Moses. Because what did Moses have to do when God walked past? Well, you read in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face and live, for no one can see who sees me can live. Therefore, I'll put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And Elijah's waiting for the moment where God is going to speak. And what's he hear? Nothing. So he runs out. He wraps the towel around his head. My eyes are closed. I can't see. You can go past now, Lord. I'm ready for you to speak. I'm hidden. God just repeats himself. What are you doing? What are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats the exact same earlier discussion. No new word, no new message, no new plan, but a new directive. Go home. Go home. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. What's Yahweh going to do? Elijah's had enough. He just wants it to end. What does Yahweh want? Keep going, mate. Game game plan hasn't changed. No new word. No new plan. No new beginning. No new people of God. Go home, mate. Let's keep going. God's word stands. And Elijah doesn't like it. Elijah has seen it. It's not what he wanted. Elijah's had enough, enough, Lord. But God's word stands. And the question, will God bring about a new Israel? Will he bring about a new word? Will he bring about a new covenant? Will he bring about a new plan? The answer is no. No. There's one plan, the same plan. We're going to keep going with that plan. And yet that plan doesn't mean inactivity. Yeah, yeah, you might not like where we're at, Elijah, but that's kind of because you actually haven't quite seen everything just yet. And so Elijah is sent home to keep on going. God is going to keep ruling. He's the king of the kingdom. So let's get some new kings in the kingdom. The plan is moving forward. And you, you're not going to last forever. We're going to get some new spokesmen, some new prophets. We're going to keep going. But what you need to know, Elijah, verse 18... But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Why is Elijah saying enough? Because he's not God. Yeah, what he saw was horrible. He was living in a post-Yahweh world, but he couldn't see everything. 
Did you notice the way he missed the 100 prophets back in chapter 18 and in chapter 19? He didn't know about the 7,000 faithful. He's not God. He can't see it all. When you say we live in a post-Christian world, what do you mean? At best, I reckon what you mean is in Australia or maybe in the West, we live in a post-Christian world. I was just speaking to the vice principal of a Bible college. He spent some time in Africa and he was telling me about the way that for the last 10 years in Africa, 10,000 people a month have been converted. 10,000 people a month. And as I'm doing the maths about how many that equates to in 10 years, he goes, actually, that's not true. It's been 10,000 a week. 10,000 people a week. And then I'm going, oh, wow, I've got to times it all by four. And I'm trying to do the maths. And he said, actually, Dave, it's not true. It's 10,000 a day. For the last 10 years in Africa, 10,000 people a day have been coming to the Lord. What's it mean to live in a post-Christian world? Well, yeah, right now we live in a post-Yahweh Australia where they're wandering away. But let's not forget we're not God. What's going on in the big picture of God's world? God is always active. He's always got a plan, but he has no new word. There's no plan B because he doesn't need it. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed down to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so we keep reading verse 19. Elijah left there and he found Elisha, son of Shebat, as he was ploughing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him and he was with the twelfth team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. That's an odd one, isn't it? Just puts the tea towel across Elisha. But Elisha gets the point. Elisha left the oxen, ran to Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And this, I think, is just a nice moment. Now, this is just me flying a kite. I don't know this for sure. What was the moment of Elijah's biggest mistake? It's when God reveals that there's no new plan and he runs out of the cave expectantly, wraps the mantle around his head and goes, right, I'm ready, Lord, give it to me. God says, go home. Elijah, the great prophet of God, the fearless warrior who by the words of his mouth took on the 450 and won, the guy who doubted God. His stuff up is there for us all to record. And what's his ongoing legacy? Can you notice the little moment of grace? He puts the mantle on him. And in fact, in 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah is miraculously taken up to heaven in the wind of God, in the whirlwind of God, the mantle's the only thing that's going to remain. It's that moment of weakness. It's the moment where he thought we need a new plan and he was wrong. What's the ongoing hope? The ongoing hope is not the people. It's not Elijah. It's the word of God. And the weakness of Elijah and the strength of God and the word of God go hand in hand. That's all that's left. And Elijah comes to an end. And we need to remember we're not God. There's no new plan. We need to keep going with God's original game plan. However, we haven't yet dealt with what is Elijah's ongoing legacy within the beautiful meta-narrative, that thing we call the gospel, God's overarching plan and everything that he would have us hear. I've actually been skirting over the great ministry of Elijah, hinting at it, but skipping over that. But it's bookended to force us to actually deal with what's the reality of the character of the man of Elijah. Go back to chapter 16 in your Bibles. Have a quick look at chapter 16, verse 33. Jump back there. Do you remember when we read this? Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. During his reign, Hiel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. At the cost of Abram, his firstborn, he laid its foundation. That is, his son died. And at the cost of Shegub, his youngest, he set up its gates, according to the word of Lord that he had spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. What's the introduction to the ministry of Elijah? The promises of God and the judgment of God against the sin of his people. And while God says to Elijah, there's no new game planned, off you go, go home, this is all going to continue, this is all going to keep going, what's he going home to do? Well, to anoint people for the ongoing work of God, but anoint people to do what? 
Go back to chapter 19, verse 17. And the one who escapes from the sword of Azal shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Bracketing the ministry of Elijah are great moments of judgment where God actually does say enough. God's ongoing plan, his forgiveness, his restoration, his caring for his people and his punishing people go together. Remember the way we started and we pondered the way that in 1 Kings chapter 11, only 50 years before this, we had one nation, one people, one God. 50 years later, you get the worst king, you get two nations, you get faithfulness. And then Elijah comes along and he has the ministry of judgment. He judges Baal, he judges the false prophets, and he judges the people of Israel. And you only need to fast forward 70 years into the future after Elijah and the people of Israel are no more and they do not come back. In 728 BC, they annoyed the wrong superpower. That superpower swept in and scattered them to the winds of the world and they did not return. There is only Judah left. What is the ministry of Elijah? He is the great prophet of warning that the promises of God will be kept and that there is forgiveness but there is judgment and it's Elijah that we are told who will return the last words of the Old Testament in your Bible Malachi 4 4 verses 4 to 6 have this to say Remember the instructions, the words, remember the promises of Moses. That's actually what Elijah didn't do, but that's how the Old Testament ends. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes, the ordinances. I commanded him at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Why am I going to send you Elijah the prophet? Well, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, before judgment comes. And his role will be to return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and I will strike the land with a curse. When Elijah comes, judgment comes. And when Elijah comes, you need to listen and you need to fall on your face and you need to declare Yahweh, he is God, or you burn you are judged, you are punished. And after the ministry of Elijah, Israel was no more. In Matthew 3, we see Elijah return. What's Elijah's role? Well, Elijah points to Jesus, but not not so much by pointing to Jesus, but actually by pointing to John the Baptist. Elijah points to John the Baptist because when John the Baptist comes judgment comes. John the Baptist comes so that you can listen to the words of God. Repentance is on offer, but now is the time to repent. Listen to what John the Baptist says in Matthew 3. When John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Having Abraham as their father was no protection for Israel. Elijah came. Now was the moment to repent. They limped and they were no more. Who warned you to flee? From the coming wrath. And then we see it. With John the Baptist, with the return of Elijah, we see the wrath of God poured out. We see his anger. We see his frustration. We see all of those emotions that Elijah longed for. 
And in a curious little moment, at the moment where God himself, where Jesus, the God-man, is on the cross, where we see the wrath of God poured out, where we see judgment, we also get these weird references to Elijah. You can see that there at the moment when Jesus dies, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. He's calling for judgment. He's calling for the end. Verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered Jesus a drink and said, now let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And judgment was exhausted. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way that he breathed his last, when he saw the judgment being poured out, when he saw the effects of the Son of God dying in our place, he said, surely this man was God's son. When Elijah comes, playtime's over. When Elijah comes, now is the moment to repent. And the beautiful news of the gospel is, of course, that when the judgment of God was poured out, that God himself was willing to absorb that judgment in the person of Jesus. And so we see in the person of Jesus the love of God and the mercy of God, but don't forget the wrath of God. Because you still need to repent. And with the coming of Elijah, with the coming of John the Baptist, judgment is certain. John the Baptist himself made the plea, even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Friends, how do you survive living in a post-Christian world? Like, you've got to remember that there's no such thing as a post-God world. This is his world. He rules it. His plan will keep going. There's no new plan. You need no new voice. You need no new word. This is his world. You need to remember to stop limping, to stop listening to the voices out there. You need to make sure we're listening to the word of God. We need to make sure it's him that we're following. But friends, you've got to remember, playtime's over. Elijah has come. And we live in a post-Christian world. That means there are people out there who haven't heard, who don't know. They don't know their right hand from their left in biblical speech. They don't know playtime is over. They don't know about the wrath of God. If you read the book of Romans, what is the universal problem that faces humanity? The wrath of God. And the only answer to the wrath of God is Jesus, the one who takes the wrath of God in our place. And you can either submit to him or you can take it for yourself. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, of course it means you've been forgiven. And because the wrath has been poured out, it means there is no wrath left. That means absolute assurance. It means reckless confidence for you if you trust in Jesus. You're in your family. You're not going anywhere. But playtime's over. And there are people who need to hear, don't they? There are people who need to know. There are people who need Jesus. Look, friends, if you don't remember anything from this weekend, just remember the interview. How cool was that interview? I mean, how great was that? What was Jackie's testimony to the world? How did she declare the love of Jesus? Took her kids to the park and said, G'day. Like, how ordinary does that look? You're taking your kids to the park, someone turns up, and you say g'day. What was the word that Kim used to describe you lot, to describe Jackie? They had a good vibe. Now, what does that mean? I take it that what Kim was getting at there is you're just, you're nice. You were outward focused. You were welcoming. You were bringing people in. But the word that I loved that I kept hearing was this word intentional. Did you notice that coming out of the interview? The word intentional. We had intentional conversations. We were intentional in our decisions. How do you actually bear the weight of the coming judgment of God? Like, how do you do that when you look out at the people around you and you're aware that there are just so many that need to hear? A good vibe? Being intentional. You're actually being someone who's a lot like Jesus, kind, considerate, 
saying g'day to the person at the park, kind of saying g'day to the people that you hang around with, but being intentional. Being intentional. Saying the things that need to be said. Oh, you're going to do it in a lovely way. You know, as I watch you guys interact with one another, your risk is probably not you're not nice enough. Okay, you guys be you. You're probably going to say g'day to the people at the park. You're probably going to actually kind of be nice. Most of you probably even turn up to work on time. Okay, you've you've probably got that. That word intentional, that was the one I really liked, intentional. You said the things that needed to be said. You weren't jerks. You weren't going out of your way. You weren't throwing stones at them. But you did make sure they understood the clarity of the gospel. And I just love the way that you guys went to the Bible to do that. Like... I talk for a living. The more I speak, the more I'm convinced God says it better. Just take them to the Bible. Best evangelism tip I've got. Be nice to them. Show them you care. Show them the reason that you want them to listen is because you want what's best for them. You want them to escape judgment. And then when you've got no idea what to say, whack open a Bible and read the gospel with them. You really can't do much better than that. Now there's more to it. Your ministers will help you figure all of that out. But for now, let's remember that we do live in a post-Christian world. We do rub shoulders with lots of people who need to hear. And Elijah has come and playtime is over. So whatever it is you guys are going to do as a church, make sure it includes the intentionality of sharing the gospel with the people around you. Let's pray you do that. Lord Jesus, we again thank you for Elijah. We thank you for his strength. We thank you for his fearlessness. We thank you for his robustness. And yet we thank you for his frailty. We thank you for the way that he's just like us. He can't see the big picture. He didn't know everything you were doing. And he just had enough. Thank you for the way that he cried out to you and you told him exactly what he needed to hear. Nothing. Nothing new. Nothing different. No plan B. It's all about Jesus. We thank you that Elijah returned. We thank you that Elijah, that John warned. We thank you that Jesus died to take your wrath. And we thank you that because of the way that he died, because he absorbed that wrath, that we can have confidence that he is the Son of God, that the curtain has been torn and that the way to you is open oh lord i pray that this church that enjoy that they would love you that they'd love one another i pray that they would have the reckless confidence that comes with knowing that you are the god of the whole world and you have defeated all the powers and principalities i pray that you would bless them as they try not to limp and try not to listen to the gods around them but lord i pray that you would empower them for intentionality Help them to love, to reach out, and to do it with purpose. And to do it trusting in your word that has not changed and that is still reserving for yourself 7,000 in Israel. And we pray that we can be part of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com dot com dot au